Hey, do you teach yoga? Have you ever trained to lead yoga classes to be a yoga therapist? Have you ever owned a yoga studio? Maybe even just wondered what it was like for the women and men up there in front of the room on their mats, leading you through endless Surya Namaskars, down dogs, and pranayamas galore? Well, these are their stories and mine. I'm Rebecca Sebastian, a 20-year yoga teacher, 10-year yoga therapist, yoga studio owner, and co-founder of a yoga-focused nonprofit. I've done a lot in the yoga world over the last 20 years, pretty much everything except had a water cooler. You know, a place to share stories, talk about struggles, successes, and find other people who do the same thing that I do. Welcome to Working in Yoga, a podcast and substitute water cooler for yoga folks to connect and build community, to share our unique profession, our challenges, and our journeys with the world. Single and ready to mingle. Caucasian, female, ages 25 to 39. Looking to find her zen, immediate pass on anyone not like me, no chance of a smash. Must be skinny, wear the latest Lulu, and have a guru. Spirituality is a much, must, but not too much, or that's gross. Not looking for any of that woo-woo Sanskrit shit? Speak American, please. Ready to get your leg behind your head and pierce your way to my heart? We might be soulmates, but if you see me out, I won't say hi. It's cool, though. You're lucky you found me. Perpetual upbeat attitude and absolute, absolute must. All vibes welcome, as long as they're good. Speaking of good, you've got to be healthy. Healthy food, healthy body, healthy natural odors welcome. I have already manifested you in my mind, so you better step up. Love a good touch session, but don't worry, you'll never know what's coming. I know your body better than you do. Let's flow together. Hashtag all lives matter. Welcome, friends, to Working in Yoga. This week on the podcast, I'm talking about all those red flags that we give off as individuals and as an industry as a whole. I'm sure you've got some in mind. Those things that you see among your peers that make you actively cringe at best and actually angry at worst. Typically, I've categorized all these red flags as I see them in the why we can't have nice things bucket. But this week, I'm breaking down the flags into smaller buckets and talking about them. So grab some popcorn and let's dig through this together. But first, could you do me a favor? Could you go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button wherever you're listening? It helps that elusive algorithm show this podcast to other people so that more folks can join us for some work talk around the water cooler. And thank you to Sunlight Dreams, our sponsor for the podcast. Sunlight is blogging about all topics self-care, and this week, Sunlight is talking about how we change. I know and love all kinds of change makers in this world, and one thing that they all know is that while change can feel like it should happen in those big, monumentous moments, it really happens in the quiet. The moment you decided in your mind to care more about yourself than that toxic ex, The moment you filled out that grant paperwork that funded that social impact project. The moment you sat in stillness. Read more at www.thesunlightexperience.com backslash blog. Now, ask yourself for one brief second, what are your red flags? 
A few weeks ago, I asked this question on my personal Facebook page. Here it goes. Hey, Facebook friends. This one is for the yoga folks. I'm developing a podcast episode on the yoga industry's red flags. You know the stuff we do that would put you off dating us if we were a person on Bumble? What have you seen that you would consider a red flag? And I'll start in the comments. That's why I started this episode out with a dating profile. The profile of the yoga industry if we were on Tinder, Bumble, OkCupid, or Hinge. It includes a nod to all the buckets that folks listed on this Red Flags conversation, which got to be a whopping 159 comments long. This conversation included both yoga professionals and students from near and far. Some of my students at my studio were in the comments, some of my teachers were in there too, but also my friend Sheila from Singapore and Carrie from Ohio and Pam from New York and lots of friends from Canada. Studio owners were there and so were yoga teachers. And this is what we came up with. The first thing I want to address is that folks who are students of yoga are looking for very different red flags than what we yoga professionals are. I mean, it wasn't even that we weren't playing in the same field. We honestly were not even playing the same sport. And I think this is something to call attention to. A long time ago, when I was in my first five years or so of teaching, I realized something that profoundly changed how I looked at my job. I realized that I could go into a yoga class and teach what I consider to be the absolute best and most impactful class the one where I dropped wisdom nuggets, had people in those quote-unquote juiciest movements. I don't really know what that is, but you know. And after the end of class, everyone would just be like, bye, Rebecca, see you later. And then the very next week, I could slide into that same class, running late, wearing my shirt inside out with two mismatched flip-flops, pull something totally unprepared out of my ass, and folks would come up to me afterwards and say, That was the most impactful class you ever taught. I can't even begin to tell you how you just changed my life with your words. This made me realize two different things. Number one, I had better watch my words more carefully. I still, even 23 years later, say internally, oh shit, when someone says, you said this thing a couple months ago in class, dot, dot, dot. And the other thing is that your students are not having the same experience that you are having. They are in their own worlds, they have their own challenges, and their own interpretations of what they are seeing in our yoga spaces. So let me share with you some of the comments for red flags that students of the practice of yoga shared. For me, that's just the hurdle of starting to a pl- starting at a place knowing nothing, really. I feel like most places that you go to, they're all pros, a pack, and have been doing it for years. I'm kind of embarrassed to start, and this could all be in my head. Maybe there are more beginner yoga classes. Maybe I can't even really answer this question since I'm not technically a quote-unquote yoga folk. And that was from my friend Kelly. Another person. The mention of burning calories or any other language that would present yoga as a weight loss regimen or part of one. I feel like that's how it can sometimes be mistakenly presented in gyms or other environments. From Allison. And the music that's so loud that you can't hear your instructor. From Audra. So much of what yoga students resonated with on this thread involved the real brass tacks of how we share yoga, are we friendly, 
spoiler alert, we definitely are not friendly, and how we actively make people feel badly about themselves. It seems that the simple act of being a nice person to the virtual strangers who take our classes is the lowest possible threshold of behavior. And if we can't even do that, we are walking red flags. So take note, my yoga pro friends, our students rarely expect more than the basic human decency that we all know to be true from us. And sometimes we are falling short of even that. So this coming week, make an effort to be kind, warm, and welcoming to your students. You don't need to be a cheerleader, but you do need people to know that you're happy they're there and proud of them for making the effort. Remember, they're doing us a favor by coming to see us, not the other way around. All of the student comments on this thread fell into one of these two buckets. The first bucket is, yoga's got an attitude problem. This is where toxic positivity and clickiness comments fall. I've recently been diving a little bit into the fact that a lot of the dissemination of yoga in the West through the 70s and 90s rested in counterculture spaces, and that is certainly where I got started. So how do we move beyond that? Are we all destined to hand down the salty fuck the man attitudes to everyone, even when folks are coming into our spaces just wanting to try something new and learn some skills to nourish their brains and bodies? And also, how the heck can we learn to be nicer to each other? This is also the bucket that I commented on. I think we have an incredibly toxic industry in general and we are mean to each other and often mean to our students. Here was my opening comment. I think one of our big red flags is how we aren't particularly a friendly group of people when you come into our spaces. Oftentimes we make people feel like we are an exclusive club that people are lucky to get entrance to. I learned a long time ago that those were the places I didn't want to learn from. Also, some stories of other people's experience were like, my mom was once in a class where the instructor didn't really engage with the class at all and often didn't do the poses that the rest of the class was doing. That was Ransom. And in full disclosure, Ransom does work for me. Also, holy crap, how much time do you have? (laughs) My way is the only way springs to mind. And that's my friend Nicole. You actually can listen to the podcast she recorded with us a couple weeks ago. This comment could also be placed in the other bucket that students mentioned, which is yoga teaching and methodology skills. How you teach, how you include all bodies, how and if you touch people, the words you use, the experience you provide when your students are practicing. This is something that I think the vast majority of student commenters, both on Facebook and Instagram, talked about. It is something that I find to be a particularly difficult pill to swallow because we do know better. We know how to make yoga classes and yoga therapy sessions inclusive. There are tons of resources out there for folks to learn from. How do we do better here? I am of the mind that we need to embrace learning true teaching methodology, just like folks in traditional educational spaces do. But how to get this message across to people who are taught to treat alignment as a one-size-fits-all directive and whose perfectionism and shame they use to guide their teaching, be it intentional or not. There were several comments on teaching methodology and that portion of our industry. Here were a few. Too often, the practice is pose-dependent and not person-dependent. From Danny. And 
I went to some yoga classes last winter where the instructor didn't give modifications at all. She finally gave one that would actually have been worse for the person next to me who had bad knees. And if you're new to class, hopefully the instructor recognizes you and asks you if you have any limitations. That was from my friend Jean. I also dislike partner poses or group setups for poses. Like I might be a yoga teacher, but I don't necessarily want to be that deep. Are we opening ourselves up to injury for a reason? And that was also ransom. Teachers that don't quote unquote teach, they simply take you through the class, almost robotic. That was my friend Amy. And teachers who practice with the class the whole time and don't at least look up every once in a while on foot smells from stinky sandals. Honestly, you guys, there were a lot of talks about smells in our yoga spaces, so watch that. And that was from my friend Krishna. <laughs> not teaching how to use props. A teacher worried about the grip of, not worried about the grip of their students' mats. And that was from Romina. Studios and teachers that do not use props or offer modifications, alternatives for body types or styles. Another red flag for me is extreme cussing in class. I never go back to those teachers. That was Serena. Red flags for me would be touching before asking or not offering modifications or alternatives from April and non-consensual touching from another Nicole. This idea of consensual touch is something we've covered a lot on this podcast and you can head back to either of my episodes with Sherry Dostoriba and hear a larger framework of this discussion. Here's what I said back to Nicole. Can you imagine if you happened to be literally anywhere else in the world and this happened to you. Just go ahead and walk up to someone sometime at the bank and be all, I need you to soften your shoulders and you're gonna feel my hands gently press on the small of your back without a conversation first. Like what in the name of trauma bonding ever allowed us to feel like this was okay? Really thinking how and why we touch people is worthy of some serious consideration. If you haven't yet dove deep into why you touch and how it happens with consent, please do. It will be better for you, for your students, and for all of us on a whole. Now, on the whole, yoga folks are incredibly esoteric as an industry, and we have a lot more that we dove deeply into for content buckets. So I have two more that I wanna share with you. First is something that is vital that we lean into, even though we are primarily a white dominated industry in the West. I'm going to share the bucket and lovely conversation I had with a few folks. And the the bucket is cultural appropriation and inclusivity. Now, this is another common comment that happened both on Facebook and Instagram, and while I am very unsurprised based on who I hang out with in the yoga world, I am also craving an evolution of this conversation, so maybe we can try one here. One of my great concerns in this conversation is that we have reduced the discussion of cultural appropriation and inclusivity to check boxes. If we check all the boxes, we are quote-unquote good white people. There is a true danger in this mindset, I think. The discussion of cultural appropriation cannot rest in changes like don't stay in namaste or no religious statues or om or use Sanskrit terms only. Those are checkboxes. And while they can be a beginning, I have seen 
a lot of folks do only those things without really integrating what it means to be truly inclusive to the folks of the global majority and specifically to South Asian and Indian folks. What does it mean that inclusivity is built into the fiber of our classes, businesses, and practices? So if I assert this statement, if you teach yoga in the West, it is appropriative, no matter what you do and who you are. Then where does this discussion lead us? There's no room for checkboxes here because true change exists outside the paradigm of a checkbox system. The conversation then requires nuance and a whole lot of discomfort. My friend Carrie replied, I will say I tend to come at this from an anti-colonial positionality, not liberal positionality. So while inclusion seems to be the way of framing it in liberal and feminist spaces, I am more interested in solidarity. The other issues that this seems to bring to people to an impasse is the problem of accountability. It's a complex issue with lots of room for growth. Just to say here, I agree that checking boxes is not a satisfying solution for me. And I responded to Carrie, here's a thought that your comment inspired. Do we need to separate out the topic of cultural appropriation and the challenge of inclusion in Western yoga spaces? Are those two different conversations? Now that I see it, I think that they are. I suspect we often lump them together because one can give us a more potentially satisfying outcome than the other can, so they offset each other. And humans crave a satisfying outcome, a checkbox, if you will. And then if we look at cultural appropriation from the lens that what we are doing in the West is cultural appropriation, full stop, how do we live with the tension that if we choose to continue teaching? Because that seems to me the supreme discomfort and crux of the challenge in conversations here. If we acknowledge that it is happening, then we have to live with this unreleasable tension if we choose not to get out of the industry. I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but I feel that way all the time. Carrie responded to me and said, I do think cultural appropriation and inclusion are very different topics that are related, of course. I don't think white people can be the ones to decide what that means to be inclusive, unless and until we have rooted out all the racism, in particular from our own communities, and then extending invitations to black and indigenous people will be invitations to violence. They are the ones to determine whether or not our spaces are safe or safe enough for them. I'm not even remotely comfortable making that judgment call for them. My focus is to be in solidarity with them in their efforts to create spaces for themselves, even when I'm not invited to those spaces. This is more of a solidarity position and related to my stance on reparations. And on the same note, I think most people are better off learning from people within their own communities, the people they're already comfortable with. Not always, but in general. And right now, we don't live in a world where any group of white people can promise anyone that racism isn't present within white communities. But we can, and I do, support oppressed communities building spaces for themselves, black and indigenous controlled spaces. So that's more of an anti-colonial stance than a reformist or liberal stance. Now, the reason why I'm reading this whole thread aloud to you on this podcast is because what Carrie said is vitally important. It is our job as white folks to root out racism in our communities, all of it. And until we do, extending 
invites to Black and Indigenous people into our spaces is an invite to violence. This conversation involves a lot of discomfort and listening on our part as white folks. Carrie and I are both white. And being able to do this and being open to continually learning about how we can root out racism in our spaces has been something that has been truly one of the most moving things that I have undertaken in my life. So let me encourage you to do the same. My friend Mandy also commented, to me that's the thing. If we're busy checking boxes, we're not paying attention to the minute and or the massive at any given moment. We can honor each other and our teachers in many ways. The gesture behind some using namaste, even if their understanding is misled, isn't the worst thing. There are much more contentious issues out there. Those individuals are well-meaning and I personally choose to use other ways to acknowledge my teachers and students. But additionally, my understanding of icons and OM is more about their symbolism than it is something of a religious context. The icons are reminders of ideals and things to be cautious of, and OM is an expression of an individual that can be done in harmony with others, even if done in different ways. It's something we can come together on or choose not to do all altogether. On a wider scale, it represents choice. She also continues to say, as far as Sanskrit goes, I'm cautious to implement it only in my classes. Yes, Sanskrit is part of the tradition, but it is also part of the tradition that excluded many. This practice, as I understand it, isn't esoteric. It's meant to be understood and practiced by all. Sanskrit is a part, but not the whole of the practice. It is much more vast than any language. So essentially getting hung up on the rights and wrongs of practice in the context of checking boxes isn't helpful. I think it's much more about the wider scope distilled down into choices at any given time. So let me ask you this. Where do you stand on cultural appropriation and inclusion topics in our spaces? Have you given it deep thought, a passing glance? There were many folks who contributed to this conversation, and I especially want to call out the work of Pamela Brown on this thread. Pam has offered to put something together for folks who want to learn more about building inclusive spaces and wellness. You can find Pam as a guest on my podcast in the early days during COVID, and I will link her contact info in the show notes. Make sure that you offer to pay her for this work, please, if you choose to contact her. Now let's move on to the final bucket of red flags. And this bucket, y'all, is just littered with red flags of all hues. I call this bucket our complicated relationship with the term spiritual. Lots of folks referenced being quote unquote too spiritual as a red flag and others referred essentially to quote unquote walk the talk by which I mean that folks put on the appearance of spirituality without actually embodying it. Now my question in this bucket lies in the realm of how we train folks to hold spiritual space, as many of us agree that this is a spiritual practice. I'm drawing a bit from the book The Power of Ritual by Casper de Cool here, but there needs to be an acknowledgement that we need training for our teachers, owners, and trainers on how to hold this space effectively. Because we built absolutely zero support systems within the industry to guide us as professionals, we often end up with poorly boundaried relationships with our students, and our students often look at us as either otherworldly and then 
They feel disappointed when we all turn out to be real us people with faults and discomfort just like everyone else. Our lack of this support, which other spiritual jobs like pastors have, also gives way to cult-like mentalities for some folks. You'll hear me say in a response, it is a very intoxicating thing to stand in front of a room of folks who admire you greatly because of the change you added to their lives. How does this change within the industry? Where do we start to build support so that we can avoid the real harm that this causes, both us in terms of loneliness specifically, but also in general as an industry, as well as the harm it causes our students? Now, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this specific thing, especially in relationship to being a yoga studio owner myself. Now, my friend Nikki said, to me, it feels like if we had a grasp on the third bucket, appropriation and inclusivity, then we would have less of a problem with this last bucket, faux spiritualization and the lack of supportive communities and path. That saying comes to mind that play stupid games, win stupid prizes, appropriate yoga badly, and get bad yoga teachers. But your question was around how we train folks to hold spiritual space, and a few things come to mind. Acknowledging early and often that most of us were not made quote-unquote teachers by any person or body that had any true authority to do so, and we are simply students and practitioners too, just like we are holding space for other practitioners. Teach people how to be a student and how to select a teacher to all incoming students. Make setting sources for statements and actions made in yoga spaces, the culture, and the expectation. I also have thoughts around the professional support aspect. So I'll share this parallel that's happening in my head. Pastors and other related professions arise out of their participation in the church, over their lifetime, maybe they hold small leadership roles in the church and they show their dedication to their faith and to leading the congregation until eventually they're in a position to pursue it as a profession. They go off to school and either come back to the congregation or go through recommendations. Now, there are many problematic things about the church, of course, but you can't say that they don't support their professionals well. Based on this, I think our focus would be more about the sangha than the profession. Fixing the sangha is maybe equal and essential to fixing the profession. Aside from teacher training, what opportunities could be offered in yoga spaces to take on roles that support the community prior to becoming a teacher? Refreshing an altar, cleaning the studio, unlocking the studio, laying out props are some examples I can think of. And shared by a friend of mine and the podcast, Sherry Dosoriba, on the same thread, for me, I think holding spiritual space has to do with and comes from both the courage to be real and the humility to be human together. Having mentors, studying and practicing ethics in action, self and peer accountability, a teaching relationship based on agency and dialogue, mutual respect, and for teachers, that can mean actively taking ourselves off the pedestal we sometimes get onto. Other con- otherwise, whether that pedestal is consciously or unconsciously, we have a responsibility to hold the inherent power dynamics with reverence. And she also said, I've been thinking a lot about peer- the peer review process. I received them, then led, facilitated, and oversaw them for years in a college for a holistic health and group exercise program. And it was useful to have ongoing accountability 
after we were hired to teach. That could be very applicable for yoga schools and studios, I believe. Also said on that thread was, I know that before I had professional supervision, I had really poor boundaries. My triggers would kick up in class and I would often take it out on students. I had poor boundaries around my relationships with them and there was a lot of mess around that too, said by my friend Jennifer. And these more subtle and nuanced trainings within the industry, I believe are really important. How we hold spiritual space, how we hold boundaries for ourselves and our students, mentorship, guidance, and how we navigate being both spiritual without being cult-like are all things that I'm actively thinking about. Consider something different that Nicole said. This might be an unpopular opinion, but a red flag for me personally is when instructors act like they're a guru or on a higher spiritual level than the rest of us. For example, the ones who wear turbans, traditional clothing, and sit on cushions, bejeweled in malas, and are given a spiritual Sanskrit name. Sure, there are genuine people who are on this path and understand that it's a lifelong journey and commitment. However, way too many people who just do a 200-hour teacher training and boom, spiritual guru magic happens to their ego. Or the original comment that Nikki made. Someone's quote-unquote spiritual practice that seems to make them a worse person rather than a better one i.e. more judgmental, more self-righteous, has lots of aversions, accepts right answers only, and no room for holding truths or considering complexities. Now, I responded to Nikki's comment, saying something that I believe to be very true and something we don't often talk about. I also want to give grace to the idea that being a person in front of a group of folks who feel like you have changed their lives is a very heady thing. It is incredibly human to have the response to feel that you are somehow responsible for other people's transformation, although we can say here that we aren't. That headiness can lead to a feeling of entitlement, not dissimilar to folks who hold tremendous wealth, ergo power. Power over people is a truly intoxicating thing, so I see how this happens. It is our job as teachers to check both ourselves and each other in order to show up for our students fully. This gave way to the indicators or red flags that people saw in cult leaders like Bikram and others who touted that their way was the only way and there was only one truth. That's a huge red flag nowadays for most of us. So that is the culmination of our red flag conversations. Our attitudes, our methodology, our inclusivity and cultural appropriation, and our relationship with the term spiritual. If you're still listening, let me ask you this. Did your red flags land into one of those categories? Our attitudes, methodology, appropriation, our relationships with spiritual? If you aren't on my mailing list now, sign up for the newsletter in the show notes and you can hit reply to me directly and let me know. Now, before I end, I want to say thank you To everyone who answered my question on Facebook a few weeks ago, there were too many amazing comments and conversations to share them all, but my profile is public, so feel free to pop in and check out the thread. I will catch you next week when we chat with someone who actually knows me in real life, Zaria Rochester, as we talk about what truly is good and bad about learning online. Now, Zaria has taken trainings both in in real life spaces and virtual spaces 
and she talks to us about the pros and cons of those experiences with firsthand knowledge. As always, I am so grateful for you listeners. Thank you so much for being in this industry with me and for joining me here around the water cooler. I'll catch you next time.